everybody. Welcome to Project Herpetoculture Podcast, Episode 10. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined by Philip Leitz, as always. And I want to take a quick moment to acknowledge our um, host network, Animals at Home, with Dylan Perrin, the goat, as Phil would say. He is the goat. Um, <laughs> it's, there's no doubt. <laughs> and um, yeah, and also our sponsor, Custom Reptile Habitats. Um, if you look in the show notes of our episodes, you will find an affiliate link. And if you make a purchase at Custom Reptile Habitats through that link, we will receive a little kickback. Helps us keep keep the lights on over here. And um, also, by the time this episode airs, we will have um, launched our Patreon. Um, so you can check that out as well. If you're interested in supporting the show, we'll have a link in our Instagram bio and show notes and all of that stuff to make it easy to find. Um, we really appreciate all of the support and encouragement that we've received um, already on the show. It feels like, you know, only 10 episodes deep. It already feels like it's is like really gathering a lot of steam and momentum. And we're both super grateful for that. And I'm um, super excited about where this is going. So with that being said, I would love to introduce our guest for today, and that is my dear friend Max. Um, hey, what's up? At, <laughs> and um, yeah, so Max um, and I have been acquainted for a few years now, and yeah. have had lots of kind of ongoing um, fun conversations about herpetoculture and its value in the world and its value to ourselves and as soon as we started this podcast, Max was one of the first people that came to mind for me of like someone I wanted to to bring on the show, someone who I think has valuable insights and perspectives. And um, that being said, I'd love to hear from Max. Maybe you can tell us a little bit um, about how you got started in herpetoculture and then kind of what species you're working with and focusing on right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in like Eastern Colorado. Um, yeah. Uh, so I had like, um, and I was a huge like dino kid, you know, my, my dad's like a, a paleo artist. So he like sculpts dinosaurs, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So he always encouraged that for me, you know, like we were always out walking around and we lived in a pretty rural area. Um, so we'd see all sorts of stuff, but I think I'd see like garter snakes, you know, I'd start, um, lots of garters. Um, I think my first like kind of captive experience was just a tiger salamander, um, that we just like found outside that I kind of kidnapped. Um, <laughs> but we had, we had that thing forever and it was just, um, amazing, but I had a lot of like crayfish, um, where I live right now, that'd be a crawdad, but out there it's a great dish. <laughs> and then you got your, I like bluegill that I also would catch from the lake and all that kind of stuff. So I had, I kind of aquariums more before I had like reptiles and all that. But my dad also had like, he kept like berms and like monitors and stuff before I was born. And we always had, you know, like a couple herbs around. Um, so it was really cool growing up surrounded by that. He really encouraged us like, going out and like herping, but also just like kind of, I guess like he was, he was very much like a naturalist. So that really kind of shapes how I, um, grew up. Um, and then as far as what I'm currently keeping, so I have, uh, 
kind of my biggest thing is Thrasslabs, Jackson and I. So Jackson's tree snakes. Um, so I have a uh, one one pair, and I just hatched my first clutch from those um, this past year. So I have uh, four juvies at this point, um, and I'm expecting, knock on wood, another clutch relatively soon. Um, and then I have a pair of Lingaha Madagascariensis. So that's the Malagasy leaf nose snakes. Um, they're really nice. They're really cool. Um, then there's, I think, uh, there's a pair of, I don't unsex pair of Mimophis mafalensis, the Mahafali big eyed snakes, also from Madagascar. Um, there, I have just some kind of odd, like I have some, a huge like morning gecko colony. It's <laughs> like, it's always expanding. Uh, I have the like crested gecko that I've had for absolutely forever. You know, um, then I have one just like Ganyasoma oxycephalum, the red tail green rats. I uh, just one of those. And then I have one Philothamnus irregularis, which is the bush snake from West Africa. Yeah. Very nice. Thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> so oh, go so, ahead, Phil. Yeah, no. So it, I was just going to say, it's, it's actually kind of interesting that you, you said you were doing like aquarium stuff a little bit, mm -hmm. kind of rated uh, herbs. That's, that's pretty intriguing because I feel like, um, that's a, a through line there with, with you. And then, you know, Connor mentioned this mm -hmm. thing. And then I want to say there was at least one other person we, we spoke with who mentioned messing with aquariums early on before they mm -hmm. did reptiles. And that, that's a pretty intriguing similarity. Um, because especially between yourself and, because all three of the, or at least all two or three of the people I'm thinking of are keeping it a, a pretty elevated level of, of, um, you know, sort of enclosure construction and dynamics and like, it, like really thinking, uh, about many, many moving parts, uh, you know, which see, uh, do you feel like that kind of comes from some of that aquaculture stuff or was that, do you think that would happen? I don't know. I think I, I kind of just like, I don't know, kind of half-assed the aquarium stuff. Like I was, I was like very much like a child. Okay. When I was doing the aquarium stuff, I had like a brackish tank, but I'm sure I was like over salting the fish. I was just like salting them. Like, I don't, I'm not sure. I didn't really know what I was doing at that okay. point. Yeah. I, I kind of got into it. I was, I think I mostly was doing the fish stuff because it was like more accessible to me at the time, right. you know, cause like I was doing the like wild caught fish and stuff. And I had, um, I, I mean, like if you went to like Petco or, at smart or whatever you get like i don't know like three four dollar fish and that was a lot more accessible to me yeah um and then i i eventually got a bearded dragon from the scales and tails yeah i guess i think it's the one in, in lake ones um yes but yeah so that was uh, it's got the big old milk snake on the front yeah yeah um <laughs> there's, but, a few, there's a few of them here now that i think there's there's oh wow yeah there's one like up in north Glen. there's one in lakewood there's one in denver um I, at least i think so they've kind of turned into a yeah there's quite a quite a oh, few wow yeah oddly yeah. yeah it's it's been a minute since i um i've been to denver but yeah but i, I ended up getting uh, a bearded dragon that i raised up and then i like read those um for a little bit after i moved to missouri um you know i had a couple of clutches but again like i still like didn't really know what i was doing you know like 
by that point I was, you know, I like read, I mean, I, I was always doing like Steve Irwin, all that kind of stuff. But I like been to a reptile expo or two. I had watched like the Dave Kaufman, like Herbers documentaries and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think like like bearded dragons were kind of like my real thing that I got into. And I think like that kind of shaped how I view the different like systems that I, you know, work within now, as opposed to like fish keeping. Cause honestly, like I could not tell you that much about fish. Oh, like I was very much like a, a child. Yeah. Okay. So I over, I over blew that a little bit. Oh, I, a little bit. That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I too, had, that was sort of how I got my start as well was with, uh, I mean, I was keeping stuff as a little kid, but the first stuff I ever bred, uh, kept in a committed way was were bearded dragons yeah yeah no a great pirate reptile for sure yeah, yeah they're super cool that was the first the first species i ever bred as well what Whoa. yeah i never i've never i don't think i've ever talked about that on the podcast but yeah I, I hatched hundreds of beardies as a teenager yeah dude and um nice. actually i have this um i have this big alligator skull yeah that um that i've had since i was 12 or 13 and um, I bought it with the first the first hundred dollars that I ever earned, and I earned it from breeding beardies and selling them to my local pet store. That is so. And I still nice. have it, and it's like it's just like a the ultimate nerd trophy, you know. <laughs> yeah, like dude. I sold I sold some baby lizards to buy a, a larger <laughs> lizard skull. <laughs> that's pretty that's a, yes, a, I know the crocodilians are not lizards, people. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hate mail. How dare you, <laughs> dude? How dare you? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I had a, the first, um, I I was living at my dad's house when I was young and when I was started breeding bearded dragons and I, I had my bedroom and the whole agreement was at, at a certain point, because I just kept, I kept, I just wanted more and I was so obsessed with dragons. I was like, it was all I wanted. And my dad was like, look, you can do what you want, but you got to keep it. It's got to be in your room. You can't have it outside your room. So I had, <laughs> oh, no. like, I had my bed and I shoved it up against my closet. And then, I, so on, the, on one side of the bed, I had like five stacked cages, which had the adults that I had. And then in front of the bed, sort of at the edge of the bed, I built a rack where on the bot like a big or not a rack but it was like a um like a wooden shelf so it had two rows so i had two rows of baby cages and then on the bottom shelf i put three incubators because i was like i was really cranking them out for a little while i was really just like oh. doing that pretty relentlessly yeah it was cool man it was fun to do it, my, my dad was pretty shocked that i managed to fit that many words <laughs> into into the bedroom um which was intriguing, uh, and and uh, it didn't smell very good in there. But uh, <laughs> you know, that was just sort of how it this, went. This actually reminded me. This is like a fun little bit of like herp lore that I actually had, I had kind of forgotten about until just now. But yeah. um, when I was doing the same thing with the beardies, selling them actually to um, to somebody named Christopher Bobell. Do you know who that is, Chris Bobell? Uh, so he. Um, he's kind of famous in the mountain king snake world for like um lampropeltis pyromelana the arizona mountain king snakes yeah. and there's like like you'll still see today like ball bell line pyros and stuff okay. like that and and i don't actually know um how i became acquainted with him but like 
basically like I would hatch a bunch of beardies and and then I would call Chris Ball Bell and be like, I've got another clutch of beardies. And he'd come over to, to my mom's trailer where I was living and collect them. And then he would he would take them and distribute them to all the pet stores, you know. And wow. but we had like a little a little thing going. And now like in hindsight, I'm like, oh man, I wonder if he's still around, like what he's doing. Cause he was a he was like one of the early like super serious colubrid guys, you know. Yeah, that's so probably interesting. Still, probably still doing it. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. We gotta. We're gonna have to eventually. There's so many rad colubrids out. Uh, just uh, North American colubrids. We're gonna have to talk with at least a couple of uh, some of those breeders, folks. Kind of at the cutting edge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Anyhow, sorry. Uh, let's <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, you you kind of. Um, very briefly mentioned um, the success that you've had breeding Thrasops, Jax, and I, and um, that's a species that up to this point, you know, has not been bred with any regularity in the U.S. Um, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm yeah, wrong. Yeah, actually, um, so, and this is all, this is like just my limited knowledge. So there was mm. someone named Skip Loader who was breeding Jax and I pretty regularly in um, the early 2000s. And a lot of the information, like the kind of husbandry information um, that I found online that isn't just like direct source information, you know, like mm-hmm. rain, weather stuff, like it is from Skip Loader's blog. Um, and I've, I've tried to contact him because I've like found his Facebook profile and I, I think a couple other grasshopper keeper have, keepers have and no one's been able to. But he was... Um, read them a couple of times in the early 2000s. And I, from what he wrote, it seems like there wasn't a whole lot of interest in them. So he kind of stopped, mm-hmm. um, which is unfortunate. I would have, you know, loved to, he's listening to this, which I kind of doubt, but, Never know. Uh, <laughs> but you know, if he is, I'd love to, love to talk to him, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, that's the only individual I'm aware of in the U S who's read them regularly. Wow. There's, um, Bernie Williams with Ivory Exotics just had a clutch um, that I yeah. think is now just incubating. Um, so that's that's really nice too. But what? Is, yeah. What, so what was that experience like? Oh, go ahead, Phil. Did oh, you no, have, oh, no, go. You, that uh, your yeah. question was better. <laughs> um, it was pretty uh, like painless as uh, for me. I think it was just like pretty nerve wracking since this was my first like. My first uh, snakes that I've hatched, like I've hatched like um, just like rat snakes that we like found in a mulch pile that we disturbed, you know, like as a kid. But like this is the first like actual captive breeding I've ever, ever done with snakes. Nice. So I was like the entire process, I was super anxious about like, oh, you know, like and I was most worried, um, you know, about egg binding because that's been an issue with other keepers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was relatively painless. I just did some, um, you know, temp humidity cycling, some white cycling, um, introduced them. Um, and when cohabbing hasn't ever gone particularly well for me, um, mm-hmm. but then they ended up breeding successfully and then I, um, you know, ended up with eggs and I, I had a clutch was five originally and then one stops developing a couple weeks prior to the others hatching but all other four are doing really well that's awesome what so what is it about um tell me a little bit about what compels you 
about those snakes? Yeah, so I think it's just like how like reactive they are. Mm-hmm. Like they are um, related to boom slang. So they're like in the taxonomic tribe, um, Spolodini. So it's like, you know, like twig snakes, um, Disfolidus, like boom slang. And then there's some uh, like the dagger tooth snakes, which I believe is like Ramphiophis. Some really mm-hmm. cool snakes in that tribe, but they're super, super reactive. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen like footage of one like moving its head, but it's almost bird like, you know, like it's incredibly reactive, like kind of, kind of like Coach Whips. Yeah. Um, yeah I've seen so they're just like on you. Like, I'm sure, I think they're both watching me, right? Now, both the adults are watching me. I'm sure the babies are too. Right. They just <laughs> are watching your every move. You know, they're like incredibly reactive. They have cool you know, like bluff, they do like bluff strikes and they have this, you know, um, like throat swelling. And I think is really cool. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think Brittany described it as like an oil slick color. It's kind of hard to mm. capture. I'm not like a great photographer either, but, um, but just like the depth of that color, they have that kind of mm-hmm. brownish hue, brownish greenish hue to the head. And then it's, but it's just like oil slick black. It's really, wow. really gorgeous. That's cool. Yeah. Are they, are they uh, pretty, are they regular? I, you got to bear with mm-hmm. me on some of this yeah. stuff. Um, for me personally, snakes are, are <laughs> I love all reptiles. I really, I truly do. But, but um, I, I still have a lot of learning and growing to do with um, understanding uh, most snakes and, and uh, crocodilians and amphibians. I mean, those are all so far out my wheel, my wheelhouse uh, personally. So are they, are they fairly commonly imported or are they, is it, is it small numbers? How does that um, yeah. So um, what's more commonly imported is uh, Thrasops occidentalis, which are the Western tree snakes. Yeah. So you see a lot of those come in. They tend to come in. I'm not, you know, like an importer or anything. This is just like my experience. And there's other people yeah. who know a lot more about this than me. Sure. But from what I've seen, they tend to come in uh, pretty heavily parasitized and they have, a stronger preference for lizard and amphibian prey, okay. which I think can cause issues with importers acclimating. Right. Um, Jacks and I come in every once in a while. Um, but I think it's, I'd say like, I see them kind of pop up a couple times a year. So not all the time. Um, but Occidentalis pop up a lot more often. And then like Flavicularis, which is the yellow throated tree snake pops up less often than that. And then there's a, I believe it's an endangered species called Grasshop Schmidtai, which mm-hmm. is never imported, mm-hmm. obviously. Well, maybe someone in Germany has it. I don't know, but. <laughs> Somebody's got one. You can probably count on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, they're super cool snakes. You've described to me this like behavior that they'll do of kind of like this like chewing. Can you just oh, yeah. for yep. the listeners because I feel like it's just like so ominous and interesting. Yeah, so like whenever they're getting ready to strike, um, you know, and they're aglyphous snakes, but they have like a medically significant bite, um, which is a whole nother thing. But but yeah, they'll start like kind of chewing a little bit, like um, before they even strike, like once they've smelled food, or even if I'm you know, like invading their personal space in any way. Like if I'm going in there with my gloves, like messing around, you know, they'll like start chewing. They'll do the like, they'll puff up. Um, 
and that'll kind of curl back into like a strike pose and it's it's really cool to see but yeah definitely kind of keeps you on your toes and they're so a little, fast a little too. unnerving yeah yeah that's scary for sure yeah have you you've you been uh tagged by one of them yet no not yet knock on wood yeah i've been pretty careful i usually will wear i have like um a whole list of kind of protocol i go through and I have like a bio protocol sheet and all that kind of stuff um and then i yeah i'll wear like um you know uh, a jacket and then like the gloves yeah i'll do like thinner gloves for the for the juvies too oh wow yeah and I'll, I'll do hooks whenever i can and i don't want to i usually like do not handle them unless i like need to move them sure wow it's reasonable for such a yeah a potent species it's yeah, really to get yeah. by one it seems like potentially at least yeah i think there's a lot of similarity between uh boom slang and thrust venom it's just that their like delivery system is so so poor mm-hmm. um so that's kind of yeah it's kind of the reason that i feel even comfortable keeping them sure yeah sure. yeah totally I'm uh, not not allowed in Colorado to have rear fang anything even yeah. anything anything no rear fang so I can't have hogs. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, I can't have hog nose. Bloodies um, are out. Yep. And uh, there was something I don't know the exact details, but it had something to do with. Um, I think that it's been. I think venomous snakes specifically have been not allowed here for a long time. I worked at a reptile store here called Reptilian Haven, which mm-hmm. was a reptile shop in the state. And they had, uh, the owner owned a venomoid uh, albino western diamondback for a little while. Mm. Um, and so he kind of had, been, he, but he had it before the the regulations right. put in place. So he was able to mm-hmm. kind of grandfathered in. But um, it was, it was a real bum. It was something to do with, there was some big hubbub around a uh, shipment of Boiga that ended up here. And, oh, about um, Yeah. So, and, and it was a drag because I had just bought some tricolor hogs that I had and I got inspected and they were like, Hey, you can't, you can't have those. And I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. It's a tricolor hog, no snake. What's it going right. to do to me, bro? What do you, <laughs> it, it was, yeah, it was a real, it was a real bummer. But, yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I did, I had not realized that about Colorado. And I, I mean, I always think of like, like Steve Mackesy, who does all this awesome research on particularly epistoglyphic species in is Colorado. So it's like kind of I mean, funny to me that that's the case, but obviously things are different for researchers and institutions. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's some, some, le- there's probably some loopholes in there. Like there's some talk mm-hmm. that having say, uh, Hilo, Heloderma, so you know, Hela's a beat. Mm. It might be okay because they're venomous lizards, not not mm-hmm. snakes. Um, there's a, I think, and I think there's a super well known Gila breeder who lives down in. The I was Sur- gonna say it's like Doc Stewart's out. Yeah, that's Florida, right. right. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I don't, I'm not, not familiar with him. We're not friends. I, I know of him. Yeah, but I don't speak with the guy, so I don't know. I, I, it's, it's totally outside my understanding, but it, it's one of those things. And of course I've got plenty of friends who I know who keep stuff they're not supposed to have, <laughs> you know, right. which is like, all right, fine. I mean, you know, you do you, man, but 
dudes keeping sidewinders in their closets, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're cute. It's tempting, you know? It's it's extremely For tempting. Sure. I, but, <laughs> but I can't. Man, I've been bit by my Egyptian Euromastics. I'm not going to fuck with a venomous thing. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't I've had a few. That. I've had a few of their, our, our local um, Crotalus oregonus, the Northern Pacific rattlesnakes, just because just I... I am dealing with them so regularly and occasionally I'll take one home if it's looking skinny or having a rough time and cool. give it a few meals and put it back out. But it's definitely one of those things where it's like, yeah, I question it, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't want to get complacent at all with this. Cause it's just not, I know I'm not going to like die from a bite, you know, or anything like that. I know, but it's just, Honestly, the scariest part about it for me is the hospital bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm actually like pretty curious, honestly, about what it would be like to be bitten. Um, sure. You know, just because it, it's it's such a, I'm sure it would be such an intense experience. I'm not I'm not saying that just to clear. I'm not seeking that anyway. I'm I'm Gross, very cautious and like <laughs> you know and maybe. <laughs> Maybe for you, this is your this is your journey, man. This is going to be your uh, your big revelatory experience. You, you're going to disappear into the desert for three days, get bit by some venomous snake, and just wait and see what happens. Just walk. Around. I mean, <laughs> it would be a story to tell. You know, it'd be yeah. worth telling on the podcast for sure if it happens. <laughs> I don't have to do it now. Do it for the podcast. <laughs> Maybe when we hit 100 episodes, if we get there, then I'll, I'll consider there it. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe when we get 100 listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's have more attainable goals here. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, so, Max, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure some of this is going to overlap with some of what Roy wanted to ask, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your... Uh, what some of your goals are with herpeticulture through your practice. And, and um, if, I mean, maybe you do or do not have some of those outlined. Uh, I mean, maybe you do it, uh, but I'm, I'm just very curious, like how you're thinking about what you're doing in terms of um, what you want to do with herpeticulture. Yeah. Um, so I think personally, I'd like to um, kind of explore like captive management or field research like as a career and I'm kind of working on maybe ultimately getting to that point mm-hmm. like obviously still like years out from that but um but herbiculture I think like I see is continuing to be a part of my life and it's like kind of like a discipline I think you know and it like provides me like I'm really project oriented and I think a lot of hurt people are mm-hmm. you know like you got to I love having like something I need to work on, you know, like, and there's always a new thing and I'll they'll never stop being things that I can add on or change, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, it's that and it's um, like a meaningful use of my time, but I think it also like provides me with the chance to like interact with these amazing animals too, you know, and, and, like, and to like learn about them, you know, like both in a captive setting, like, seeing their behavior, but also like I become even more invested in doing like research into like their ecology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like talking about it as a, as a discipline because it's Mm -hmm. uh, Roy and I have both uh, 
opined on that a little bit on this show and, and sort of in our own conversations, uh, talking about herpeticulture sort of as an, as an art, as a creative process mm-hmm. and, um, sort of, uh, yeah, like discipline is the right word. That's, that's the, that's, that's the right word for sure. Kind of always shaving off an imperfection, making small tweaks and seeing, you know, sort of the deviations that happen as a result of those changes. Um, yeah, I, I find that quite satisfying as well. Yeah, yeah sometimes, sometimes I even think of it as like a devotional practice, you know, it's like, like, it feels like, like discipline almost sounds like too, like, militant or like, right, yeah. um, like, I'm not, not to say that that's the wrong word either, because I think that there are aspects of it that are that require discipline, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but I also think of it like, for me, like, when I'm you know, going to tend to the herbs. Like I don't, I don't like the cognitive experience of it. The internal experience of it isn't something, isn't usually like one of like discipline for me, you know, or like rigor. It's like more like devotion. Cause I'm just like stoked, you know, and happy about it. And, and like, um, appreciative of the, of the experience in that way. And of course, then there are the days where you like, you know, they've, your snakes pooped in the water bowl for the third time in in like a six hour span. And you're kind of like, ah, okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's the good thing about euros, man. No, no water bowls. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I actually think, so I, I I relate to what you're saying, Roy, but I, I really mm-hmm. think discipline for me kind of hits it in, in a way that because um, so like jujitsu is a disciplinary practice, right? It's like this, right. you're, you're, you're like repeating uh, certain movements, you're repeating certain practices and there might be something sort of meditative in those processes but it still, to me, feels sort of disciplinary. Uh, well, disciplinary might be the wrong word, but uh, discipline-like in that mm-hmm. when I get here to the shop, there is sort of like a like a set of like 10 things that I'll do every fucking day, like every mm-hmm. day before anything else. Like I do the same 10 fucking things. And it, in a way, it's almost as if I'm not, I can't get started until those 10 things are done. Like I know yeah. it, oh, totally. Like I got to okay, I'm going to come in, I'm going to, you know, clip on all these lights that don't come on until I get here. I'm going to check the incubators, I'm going to do any dishes that I have to do. You know, I'm going to uh, you know, uh spray down stuff that like the tailor eye, I got a, a female that's grabbed over here, the Xenogama tailor eye that and so I have mm-hmm. to come in and spray her 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 cocoa fiber down because it dries out overnight. Um you know, all this stuff that that kind of happens. And then it feels like, okay, what are we, what are we doing today? You know? And, and, but it, but in reality, sometimes those first 10 things is like a lot of work. It's like a lot of stuff, two, three hours before I get done with those 10 things and say, all right, you know, what's the, what's actually on the docket for today? Is it, is it cleaning, cleaning the exterior, exteriors of the enclosures? Is it dusting lights? Mm -hmm. Is it, uh, do I need to do I need to pick a few cages and completely change out their bedding because the bedding's getting old or you know who knows mm-hmm. whatever what right. you, you you name it right um, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't you know but even when I'm doing those ten things there's still there's stuff that happens like there's stuff that happens inside those sort of rote 
tasks that are are to, are like a discipline in a way. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. I kind of I kind of relate to what you're saying with that, Max. I, I like I like the term discipline a lot. Yeah, I think it's like a mix of of both of those things, like both devotional. And I guess, yeah, like you said, disciplinary doesn't sound quite right. Oh, yeah. That is that's full of Roy. But yeah, like I think there's like, I think it's like a mix of that. Like I'm able to, like I need to be disciplined enough to, you know, care and provide for the my like the animals. I think that's really like satisfying to like see them thrive in my care. Yeah, but I also like am I have this like extraordinary privilege of spending time with them and interacting with them in a multitude of ways. Okay. Yeah, and seeing I think like the ultimate, you know, I guess practice and like um, devotional like practice and experiences like seeing them exhibit like natural behaviors that I wouldn't have mm-hmm. seen otherwise if I hadn't provided them with specific opportunities. Totally. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, it could be, uh, I I mean, I feel like, uh, there, there's, there's, there's a, there's such a fun difference between when you have it, let's say you have some new project that's only a few months old Mm. and you see something very different. You're like, Oh man, that's so wicked. Like I never, you know, uh, like for example, I have my, Taylorite and they have like the shortest courtship courtship display. I mean, or like the, the short, the whole thing from beginning to end is like seconds from mm-hmm. beginning of courtship to mating to done. It's mm-hmm. so brief. And I hatched quite a few before I finally caught the damn bastards <laughs> doing their thing. And it was so awesome. To see the male's tail come up and wriggle around. Cause you don't eat. Yeah. A lot. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of pe- Taylor eye keepers know that that happens. You know, they have that shield yeah. at the at the bottom, and then the little the little strip of tail that runs out at the end. And a lot of times, in some animals, those tail tips are gone; they're just not mm-hmm. there. But yeah. if, when they're intact, they use them and just wriggle it. It actually, uh, in a funny way, kind of resembles like when leopard geckos do it before they lunge yeah. at item yeah. or or um kind of looks like a mix between that and like phrynocephalus mustaceus with their little tail curls you know yeah. in between and then they pick up the whole butt end of the tail and wriggle it and then chase after the female but it's this it's this super brief experience um and uh there, there's such a pointed difference i think between seeing that for the first time and then seeing an ornate pair mate and do the, you know, go through their whole courtship. But it's like, okay, maybe I've seen this like several hundred times now. And it's not, it's mm-hmm. certainly not dull or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's no less interesting. And, and it's like, ah, great. Everything's working. You know, they, they seem happy enough to do this and, and, and what have you. But um, there, there is some, there, there is something fun in like the novelty of, 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 of a new behavior or a new uh, yeah. New behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think there's a difference between seeing, you know, like my morning geckos, like pseudo copulate, you yeah. know, or have, you know, and they're awesome. They're fun to watch. You know, yeah. they're like pseudo copulating, they're getting into little spats, you know, they're chirping, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, there's a difference between that and seeing, you know, like the Trasops mate. Yeah. I think there's a seeing that behavior for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like in, 
in this too, there's something that like comes to mind for me where it's just like, whenever I have the experience of seeing like novel behaviors like that, whether it's mating or like a certain feeding behavior or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm always just like, so keenly aware in that moment of just like what a privilege it is to witness that stuff. Because like, you know, you can, you can even go like read through, you know, field research of stuff and like, people don't see this stuff, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's really rare. You know, I think like you can, you can look up information about birds and there's a lot of information out there about like how birds nest and stuff like that, because, because people have sat there and watched it and partially because, you know, birds, they return to their nests to tend them and to feed the babies and stuff like that. But it's like, how often is somebody seeing the behavior of like a reptile nesting? you know, like a snake mm-hmm. laying eggs. It just doesn't happen. Like you're not going to see that in the field. If you do, it's like an extremely rare event. And like that also just like, I feel in some ways like affirms um, the value of herpetoculture to the scientific community is, okay. is like being able to contribute these kinds of observations that are otherwise just um, not realistic to observe in a natural setting. Mm, yeah. That's a strong point. You know, you know what it also makes me think about too is um, I'm sure you guys have had this experience where, dude, I love the mug. Yes, dude. <laughs> this is like the second time I've seen you use the Project Herpeticulture mug. Uh, uh, I I got mine too. Let me just. This was a this was a very special gift from Mr. Leitz. Solidarity. Um, you know? Nice. There we go. <laughs> um, sorry, but uh. uh so I was just thinking about this the other day, which is um, we also get the privilege of like reverse engineering a behavior that we've missed sometimes because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, you have to you have to be there to see something happen. Right. But, mm-hmm. but then there's other times where you're like, whoa, what happened here? You know, you 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 come through, you go through, your, you know, I go through like one of the again, my checklist of 10 things. One of the things first things I do is I walk down the rows of all the cages and I check every single cage to see if there's anything I need to take care of immediately, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, are, is there blood on the wall? Like, which that never happens because I keep everything mm-hmm. solo. But, you know, so, something along those lines, you know, checking just to see if there's anything that's urgent. Um, and sometimes every once in a while I walk by a cage and everything is throttled. Like maybe maybe there's just a pile of dirt that was not there before. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. you can tell that the animal, something happened and the animal decided, all right, I need to dig a new burrow. I need to find a new hiding space. Um, I don't like these rocks here. I'm going to kick them away or, or, and then, and then trying to kind of work backwards and say, all right, what, what happened? And maybe why did it happen? Um, you know, there was one, I had a, uh, a, a Thomasi, a domestic Thomasi that was, mm-hmm. Um, for like a week or two, I was coming in and she would, you, I found, I saw these little pockets of, cause I keep them on this gravel, this like uh, pea gravel and sand. And I came in and, and there were like little pockets all over where she like, you could tell she like scraped it out of the way. And I was like, mm. what? This, she's not gravid. She's not nesting. She's, I don't, it doesn't look like burrowing behavior. It didn't look like she's trying to, you know, make some new hiding space. Like what's happening here. And, um, I put, uh, I couldn't catch her out doing anything because, you know, she would usually just come out and eat and then she'd run around and t- take a shit and then she'd go hide and then do it again another hour later. But she, um, I put a little ring camera on her and 
in the later evening, so like around 3, 30, 4 o'clock, when most everything here is gone for the day, for most of the day anyway, she was popping out and was scraping through the gravel to pull out little bits of hay, Timothy hay, that was left (laughs) under all the gravel and stuff. And I was like, look at you, you little smart little bastard. She was, oh man, I love seeing Foraging. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, But I never would have, I mean, I, I guess I've seen other Euros do that before, but not, it's, it's usually when I've seen them do it, it's been, there's no greens today. So they're going to go and find something else. This was like totally unrelated. She had had her fill of greens and it was at the end of the day, you know, and um, she kind of threw me through a loop. Cause I, I just assumed everyone was done. Like I, I just assumed mm-hmm. they, they never came out after a certain point in time, but the, they can surprise you from time to time. That's the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Um, well, um, yeah, moving on, I'm curious, um, something that Max, you and I have talked about in the past is just kind of the, um, addictive nature of herpoculture (laughs) (laughs) and, and just like the, um, ever present urge to find the next thing to work with and all of that. And, um, and yet, like at this point, you have a relatively small collection. Um, and I know that that's something that you're at this stage moving forward, like trying to grow in like a responsible and kind of thoughtful way. And I'm curious if you could just kind of speak to that, like with your experience of that. What are you, what are you considering? Like, do you have a, a specific focus like regionally or? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'll speak to the. Uh, Guess my regional focus first. So I'm definitely mm-hmm. pretty solidly into like central, west, Afrotropical um, <laughs> arboreal snake species, um, but also the Madagascan snakes as well. Like that's kind of my wheelhouse. And I think there's a lot of other, you know, groups and species and like um, ecomorphs that are interesting too. But like that is kind of what has stuck with me because I think. Um, I really love like diurnal species, you know, mm-hmm. like I love being able to, I'm not, you know, like a huge night owl. So I love being able to, you know, go in the lights are on. I see them out cruising, you know, they're not just in a hide, you know, and I, I recently got, I completely forgot to mention, I have um, a pair of Toxicodryas adamantius, which are the, um, they recently got split from the powdered tree snakes. There's a lot of tree snakes in here, um, but it's it's uh, actually really pretty different. Um, they look kind of similar to Boega. Um, mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they were split from Toxicodryas pulverulenta recently. Um, but yeah, those are nocturnal, and that's a whole adjustment for me because I'm like, I never see them, you know? And I'm like, yeah, all right, like this is, you know, I would love to just see them peeking out every once in a while, but but it's all still early days for them too. But um, yeah, like I think that is like a really good fit for me because I like having like large vertical oriented enclosures. I like having the ability to, you know, plant those enclosures and not have them absolutely destroy the foliage, you know, Um, like I really would love to like move further towards, you know, like biosope enclosures like Roy has. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, I think like, I guess just like diurnal, I love arboreal. I love being able to yeah, use branches in a really, um, Adalba. Oh, uh, she's so big. Girl is here. And she's my a big girl now. She's a beast. Oh, sorry to interrupt the podcast. But oh, you're important. good. That's really important. The worthwhile um, interruption. Absolutely. Oh. Um, and I think that like particular, those particular regions are just like, especially interesting, interesting to me. I think there's interesting, um, you know, culture there, but also like ecology. Um, you know, I think there's interesting ecological niches too. And I think it's like relatively neglected in the hobby. Like I think there are a whole lot of individuals focusing on that. I think that just feels right to me to kind of expand into. Mm. Yeah, I love that. What? what, Sorry, Roy. Go ahead. No, you know, go ahead, Phil. I was just going to say, can you can you speak a little more to to what you find so compelling about that particular in region? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. um, So, like I mentioned, there's a lot of. I mean, obviously, there's like a heavy like colonial influence. Um, so I think culturally it's interesting. I think it's like important to like understand like the implications of that too, when you're like getting, um, I mean, I think especially like venomous reptiles from that area, but that isn't really my wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, there's that, um, you know, history, um, but also just like ecologically there's. I think those forests in particular, I think like tropical African forests mm-hmm. are, I think neglected as far as um, study. I think there is a lot more information available on the neotropics um, in particular. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also, I mean, not that obviously like forests are kind of rapidly disappearing around the world. Um, but like Madagascar is like one of the most deforested places in the world mm-hmm. For there's sure. some serious habitat loss even you know like dry dry forests and dry scrub forests and um you know all of the incredible um just like succulents and scrub that's like in um western and like southern madagascar is like getting destroyed not to the same extent as like the eastern rainforest but mm-hmm. it's just like rapidly disappearing I feel like this is, you know, I don't have, you know, like the financial means to necessarily like travel to those places. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm able to, I, I would love to eventually, but, but at least for now, you know, I can like connect with the ecology, like with these particular animals. Like I think forests have always been like a very kind of therapeutic place for me, you know, like of any mm-hmm. type. Um, so I think that's why, even just like looking up and seeing like a tree canopy is very like therapeutic to me. And I, I, I don't know. I think there's just like some connection there between that and like arboreal species. Like I love yeah. just seeing animals mm. just kind of like cruising through branches. It's almost like, like flying almost, you know, I just, I just think it's super cool. Yeah, I, totally. I can resi- I can relate to that sensation, but with deserts. I yeah. Mean, I was going to say, you're not, yeah. not a tree guy. No, I'm a desert. I'm a blossom. <laughs> dry rock and harsh sun kind of, you know, but there, but it's, you're right. There is, um, if, if you find some kind of affection for a specific place, 
And I think you could probably find a, you could probably feel pretty strong affections for lots of different environments, but yeah, there really is something personally about the desert and um, deserts broadly, obviously, but specifically the American Southwest desert. That's just like uh, therapeutic and humbling and mm-hmm. um, like, right like I, I i don't i don't know how to elaborate it on it much more than that but they're just like and that's what was one of the reasons i love euros and ornates and stuff because you know yeah. it's basically the same place man you know <laughs> yeah this yeah. is this harsh and terrible and intense and 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 kind of cosmic and and like uh just captivating in a way and and i it's really cool to hear that you feel something similar for uh, for, 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 for this other area, you know, um, I didn't, uh, I like when people, people talk about, uh, what makes a place compelling to them, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's really cool to like, yeah, hear about that. And like, I really admire that kind of orientation and approach to herbiculture, especially like at the hobbyist level, you know, where it's like, you know, folks who are just like really passionate about a certain region or like the the flora or fauna or, or all the above about a certain place. And um, in many ways, like it's like kind of a, a process of exploration of that place to, to work with species from that region. And I feel like that's kind of an emerging, I mean, it's been there from the outset of herpetoculture, but I feel like it's like emerging um, with more prominence kind of in this in this time in herbal culture, I see more and more people who are kind of doing it in that way. And, and, um, I don't know, I, I think it's just like a refreshing take on the, on the practice, you know, and on like the journey of, of herbal culture. And it also makes me curious about like earlier, you spoke a lot about, to, um, you know, witnessing natural behaviors emerge in the species that you keep. And, um, it also makes me curious about like, what are your, what are your personal um, like metrics for like success in what you're doing? Like, what are the things that you're wanting to see from your animals um, and the things that like, let you know that you're on the right track as a, as a herpetoculturist? Yeah. I think one of um, the most interesting things about herpetoculture for me is that those goalposts, goalposts are like constantly being adjusted you know, like my mm-hmm. metrics for success are like wildly different than they were when I was like 14. Totally. You know, like I would have been happy just like keeping, you know, whatever animal alive at that point. You know, I was so mm-hmm. excited. My Sambo was eating, you know, I'm not <laughs> yeah. like, um, <laughs> um, but like, I guess at this point, like just like replication, like you said, replication of natural behavior. And a lot of that it's kind of difficult to gauge because there's only so much described behavior. I think mm-hmm. like utilization of the different um, cage furniture doesn't feel quite right, but of like the um, orientation setup, the objects inside of the cage, like utilization of those in a way that like is fitting with their like ecology and wild behavior, mm-hmm. you know, and there isn't a whole lot of information you know, necessarily about that. But for instance, like there's boom slang are pretty, um, you know, commonly known as uh, like nest raiders. Right. I think Connor talked about this with his episode and he's another excellent um, thrasops keeper. Um, he's doing some awesome stuff with all the, the biotope plants as well. 
but there, so I have these, I'm like trying to replicate like weaver bird nests with this um, very specific like woven bird nests that I found online and ended up ordering, but I was able to see like nest rating behavior after placing, you know, like quail eggs and chicks and stuff. So that's uh, kind of like, yeah, like she, um, my female thrasops um, that I tried it with, like she, I try to do, you know, feeding enrichment, like foraging. I try to, you know, mix it up, um, feed a variety of food, but I created scent trails like to the um, nest. And then she was like poking around. She was like trying to find the entrance for the nest. She was like going all around it. And then it would, you know, it was fixed enough that it would swing a tiny bit and almost like in a tree branch so that like she would kind of nudge it and then like sit, like stop completely, like stock still and then just like keep her eye on it. And then when it stopped and slowed down, she'd like go back around and she'd try to find the entrance. Then eventually like when she found that, she just like went absolutely berserk. <laughs> she just like destroyed um, all the prey items in there. It was super cool to watch. Wow. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. I would love to have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, I have, I have a video I can send you. Um, oh, really? Yeah. 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 It's not, not that first time, but I have, I think what I was able to capture is her, um, grabbing a chick from there. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. That is so, that's so cool, man. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, uh, it's so interesting to hear about all the different ways. This is like, um, you know, again, we've only done like 10 shows and yeah. uh, hearing each different person's approach to like, I'm going to try this. Like, <laughs> like, did you see Roy showed me this, but did you see the meme that Connor made? Uh, oh yeah. It was the, the Eric, <laughs> Eric yeah. the shit out of his lizard. <laughs> but yeah. as funny as that was, that's, uh, it's pretty brilliant. I it's cause there's yeah. all, all these things that I just would have never considered. Um, yeah, can you, you guys can't hear that car alarm, can you? I can very, very, yeah, like the same, very, it's not very an issue. Family. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. don't worry about it. All right, cool, just making sure. Can you hear all the like, like bird noises and stuff here? No, no, okay, good. But I will say, I can see all the bugs flying around, and there's been a few where I'm like, dude, are you recording on top of a beehive? Because it's like, <laughs> look like they're buzzing around. <laughs> It's just really buggy here right now, but yeah. <laughs> um, what, what, so, uh, are, are you, is, is it primarily through just spending a lot of time observing your animals that you're, you're, is that where you're getting most of your information as to like, oh, this clearly seems to be working and this clearly seems to be not working or that, you know, they're doing a lot of this and a little less of that. Is it just raw observation for the most part? So it's a mixture between that and like reading about their natural history. So I think like when I initially got into herpetoculture, like I had a pretty like limited understanding, you know, like I was very much like, this is my care sheet. There's not really yeah. a connection to their ecology. Yeah. But I think, you know, like reading, you know, like field guides has been like absolutely crucial reading, um, you know, scientific papers about, um, you know, they're like anatomy and that comparing that to like other species, like in that instance, like to the boom slang, you know, like there's a lot of overlap as far as like ecological niches there. 
Yeah. So, you know, like comparing that and thinking like, well, you know, I think this like would work. So I'm going to try that. But also just like given how um, prone they are to like foraging, like they're so, and they're like incredibly food food motivated um, snakes. Like they are, which is why I always have issues like cohabbing them. (laughs) Um, Do they, do they cannibalize? um yeah not um i don't think they would cannibalize if there wasn't like food sense so this is i briefly tried cohabbing um oh i've cohabbed when i was like pairing them together so obviously but i have kept them together for a couple weeks usually just to like make sure i can like see a visible walk you know and they're not i've had pretty minimal issues i have um like six by two by three and five by two by three um, vivs for them now um i've had pretty minimal issues as far as like uh resource partitioning and, and use and all that but as soon as my female in particular who's a little bit larger than the male if she smells food on the male she will absolutely just like go for it like she will strike mm-hmm. him she'll start oh. chewing you know like i've had to like physically remove her mouth from like the male it's yeah that sounds stressful it was incredibly stressful you know and i've like i tried all sorts of stuff before i you know i didn't i didn't like rip her off you know Mm -hmm. but i had to like leverage her off of that i had my gloves on you know i got my thick like welding gloves on but Mm -hmm. yeah i was would love to avoid that for sure (laughs) yeah this is super sketchy yeah no it was like (laughs) and like there were i think skip loader was in when reading his notes like he's had i I guess had you know like relatively a few issues with Mm cohabbing like in smaller enclosures too so i'm i genuinely i don't know if it's just like my pair i don't know if it's some like parameter i haven't figured out Mm. you know like when i do keep them cohabbed for breeding which you know has only been the the two times but i have this like weird kind of like fencing thing where i have like the hook in one hand you know i like try to keep them both busy with prey items and i have like my mister in the other hand and i'm like trying to spray and like hook and like keep them <laughs> off and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Would, as long as oh go ahead oh no keep going please i was gonna say as long as you i think like if you get it through about like a half hour of that then you're good mm-hmm. but up until that point you know and i even past that half hour just sit in my chair watching them because i do not trust her yeah mm-hmm. at all so so actually this brings up a uh, something i'm really curious about um so uh if if you didn't see outright uh like aggression so mm-hmm. you mentioned the female just latching onto the male let's say right. that was out of the picture would mm-hmm. there be certain behaviors that you would treat as this doesn't feel right i'm going to split them up that that's not outright aggression yeah i think like if I notice any, I mean, absolutely any change as far as like eating, mm-hmm. I'd probably split them mm-hmm. as far as like who is, if, especially if one like went off of food yeah. for any reason, you know, if there were, I noticed like a reduction in appetite that wasn't related to like seasonal shifts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I, I think it would be dependent on like enclosure size too. 
mm-hmm. because I, I try to keep, um, you know, a decent amount of like cork tube hides in there that are elevated mm-hmm. different heights. You know, I elevated water dishes, like lots of branches basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if I notice that they're having difficulty, like, um, asking when they wanted to like due to like space constrictions like I think I would um remove them for that reason if I noticed that like um issues with like cork tubes and hides you know like if I felt like there wasn't adequate space in there mm-hmm. like I think mm-hmm. I would remove them um yeah I um I know there's a lot I feel like um I'm still like learning about that as I go like I feel like there's still so much, which I think is why they're so interesting. Like there's so much I still don't understand about their behavior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just like, um, I'm not sure if I've like kept them cohabs long enough to really see other like warning signs, but. Yeah, that's, that's intriguing to, <clears throat> intriguing to me because um, this is, I don't know why this one comes up for me all the time, but um, cohabitation is just something I just won't do with euros. I yeah. just, you know, just sort of as a hard line. I mean, and it's, and I, I, I've said it before, but I try every, almost every year I try in some way, shape or form. I mean, there is a handful of exceptions, like with Euromastix JRI and stuff that seem somewhat more tolerant of of, of communal housing, generally speaking. Um, But even in those, I, there's just big changes that happen when you're housing multiple animals in the same space. And, um, and I'm definitely the minority in this. Like most people keep their Euromastics together. And, you know, you mentioned the, uh, I forget his name, but the other gentleman who, uh, yeah, was, loader. that guy, uh, you know, you see, you say that he cited not having any issues with cohabitation and it's yeah. smaller cages. And that that's, I think there's probably something really, really intriguing there as to why mm-hmm. he didn't see it. And, and, and again, I, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to speak to him specifically yeah. and I'm not trying to say anything at all, but like my first instinct when someone tells me that is you weren't paying attention, but that's, mm. but that's just my bias because with euros, I'm so familiar with the, t- with a lot of the small behaviors that they'll exhibit mm-hmm. that, that indicate to me it's time to split you like, and, and it, it's, it's so visceral for me at this point. Like if I see hear, notice any of that, I, like it, it causes me physical discomfort, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, there's a, there's a specific noise to the way that a Euro will run at, you know, at, at a, at a cage wall, if it's being attacked by another Euro, there's a very specific mm-hmm. sound and it's just like, Oh, like it, it just immediately raises the cortisol in, in my, in my body. And, yeah. um, Again, I don't want to speak to Skip or, you know, I mean, because he knows more than I do, obviously, about this particular subject. But I'd be really curious if it's maybe this maybe he wasn't noticing as much or possibly was there some other factor there? Like, was it Mm -hmm. have to do with the smaller enclosures? Mm -hmm. Did it uh, did did he did he um, acclimate them to captivity? it together or was it you know you know were they solo previously and then he introduced them i mean there's so many ways of kind of splitting that atom um yeah i don't, I don't know i don't have something specific in mind but uh, yeah i feel really similarly about the the stuff that i've been tracking with like the polycris and also with the spilotes and it's 
I think cohabitation is just one of those subjects that's just super nuanced and, and complicated. And um, like one of the things that I've tried to do to mitigate potential issues with cohabitation is include um, multiple basking areas in each habitat. So in the um, in the eight foot Spilodes vivarium, there are three separate basking platforms, you know, a couple feet, couple feet apart from each other. And so if the snakes desire, they can actually bask independently and not compete for, um, yeah, for that resource. And similarly with the Polycris, I have, you know, two basking areas set up in each of their vivariums. Um, but yeah, there's just, there's just, that's obviously just a, just, um, mitigation for one, one resource, you know, and like with the Spilodes, when I'm feeding them, it's always been a concern to like, make sure that I'm like very on it, you know, I'm ready to go. (laughs) And thankfully, you know, having an eight foot vivarium, it's pretty easy to separate them out and feed them individually. And I haven't actually noticed a lot of competition, uh, competition for food. I've like, I've never had to grab the same prey item and have to separate them or anything like that. But what I have noticed is that, um, is that my male, um, handsome boy, who's, who's going on 15, um, he's, he's got cataracts, which are slowly, you know, he's slowly going blind. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that just in the last couple months, um, he's just way more reactive with food. And, um, there was one, one moment where he actually smelled food on one of the other snakes and bit them Mm -hmm. and then realized it wasn't food and let go. Uh, but, um, but it was one of those situations where it was like, okay, there's another layer of complexity, you know, where it's like, he's, he can no longer see, you know, um, as clearly. And so he's not relying on his vision as like a primary, um, method for uh, identifying prey. It's like all about scent now. And so that just is another layer to consider. And I think it just really, again, emphasizes the complexity of these kinds of considerations when you're working with things in numbers like that totally yeah and i i think it's really dependent on not just like species but individual animals like i've had like zero issues cohabiting like the the leaf nose snakes the madagascan leaf nose snakes because they you know like are they're lizard eaters but i um you know i've noticed like none of those you know warning signs that i look out for Mm-hmm. You know, and they, I think it's partially due to their like, I mean, smaller size. They're like, um, kind of different approaches to foraging and um, striking a prey, and like what they'll eat. Like grasshoppers are really generalists, but lots of like avian reptile prey. Um, and they're all like very movement oriented, but even just like the way the lingaha move is completely different to how the grasshoppers move, mm-hmm. and it's like very different from any like lizards I'd be feeding. Mm-hmm. And they're a lot less keyed in on that too. Sure. You know, like they're kind of like yeah, makes waving back and forth, you know, like the like vine snake swaying in the wind, you know, kind of thing. Especially if there's any I have like computer fans for ventilation on there and they're like especially yeah. if those have kicked on, they're like swaying back and forth. And they're Ooh, not that's so cool. Yeah. They're not ever, you know, like moving as quickly. They can, they can move really quickly if they want to, and they forage sometimes, but you know, I've never noticed that kind of, you know, like feeding response or um issues that I've had with the thrust ops. 
So I, I also have the Xenogama Taylor eye, as I mentioned before. And, you know, when I started keeping them, um, and I had kept them a little bit when I was in college, um, the, it, all of the care guides out there said they, they're great in groups. They're just fine mm-hmm. in groups. And clearly they are pretty social. Like they're a lot more social than the Euros. In, in, mm-hmm. Well, maybe not a lot more social, but I guess they clearly seem to spend more time in, you know, in little, little communities and sort of somewhat mm-hmm. more tolerant of one another to a degree. But um, one of the, one of the problems I'm encountering is that I'm, I'm starting to find that I, a lot of those animals I have to house solo as well, d- depending on, mm-hmm. on, on the exact ones, because I had one male just absolutely mutilate the arm of a female. And it, it was like, the stakes are so high because, mm-hmm. you know, if, 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 if the consequences on offer are that one of the animals can kill the other sufficiently, mm-hmm. then it becomes extremely stressful for me to even allow them to be together without supervision at all. Like it's, it's because, you know, if it's going to happen once in a while, that's too much for me. You know, it's one thing, you know, cause a lot of the, a lot of the folks who talk about, uh, you know, at least in Euromastics anyway, uh, there were guys who used to say things like, well, the pairs that I have that are somewhat aggressive towards one another tend to breed better. And mm-hmm. I have, I have a lot of questions for that particular yeah. line of thinking, but even, even if we, if I were to take that as, okay, I'm just going to take that as anecdata and say, yeah, you're, you're okay. Maybe there's something there. Um, I'm, the little, the little shit, the little tiny, you know, little stuff of like, ah, occasionally there's chasing and oh, occasionally they bite each other's toes. Cause it's like a little aggressive, like I'm going to bite your toe or sometimes they bite each other's sides and it's, ah, it's negligible. It's like, well, to me, that's not really negligible. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's important. That comes up. There's a reason that's happening. And I don't think it's as simple as, ah, it's tolerable. It's normal. Especially mm-hmm. If the the if it's not very well spelled out, where they're going to cross the line from just being aggressive a little bit, and now we're killing each other up here, you know, like it, it's yeah, totally. It, it feels really uncomfortable, and um, you know, again, I and I don't mean that to say anything disparaging about my good friends who cohabitate their euros you know i'm not Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to say they shouldn't necessarily it's just you know there's certain certain risks that i just don't want to take and Mm -hmm. um it's hard when you're when you're when you're working with something that may not be very well described or uh maybe was described for a, a long time but inaccurately so you know and now you're finding yourself having to make choices like solo housing, which isn't necessarily economical and isn't, right. you know, and isn't necessarily easy. Um, yeah. Again, I, I don't know exactly where I'm, <laughs> where I'm going with this, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I agree with that. Like, I think when I initially like got the thrust ups, like I kept them separate for the, like the quarantine period. And then I, you know, was planning on just cohabiting them permanently, you know, because I had heard that there were relatively few issues. I planned on giving 
you know, like a relatively, relatively large vivarium, you know, I'm sure they would absolutely use a much larger space. And I wish I you know, had an entire room to give them. Sure. Um, but yeah, like I just was not prepared going in and then I, you know, I've adjusted, like I've had to you know, get an additional closure set up, but, mm. but I didn't know that going in, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. These things that we learn along the way. Yeah, exactly. the curveballs yeah. to keep it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to. I need to uh, double the uh, vivarium display space that I had in mind before. It's like, oh, okay. Oops. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. it's it, these are the kinds of things that you know we have to take into stride and figure out a way to make it work for the benefit of the animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely right. I can't keep it in a twenty gallon. Uh, yeah see that's uh there are people that would say you could but uh should you (laughs) you know it gets complicated quick um well on that kind of vein i'm curious um just like really really like zooming out and like looking at herpetoculture more broadly i'm curious um like from your perspective um as someone kind of like somewhat like newer to the hobby, to the mm-hmm. practice, um, like what are the aspects of herbiculture that you most enjoy? And like, you know, the other side of that coin, what are the aspects of herbiculture that you, you feel personally conflicted about or that like, you know, you have gripes about? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think like, I love the, and so I like, I love the sense of community and that obviously there's like a, a dark side to that too, that I'll kind of mm-hmm. expand on, but mm-hmm. there's that sense of community and like collaboration, like you're working together with these complete strangers that you wouldn't have met otherwise. Like I would never know boy, you know, if it mm-hmm. were for like puffingsnakes.com, you know, like, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> um, you know, and it's this like, like I, there's the Facebook group, the Thrasshops group in particular is like very, it's feels like, it feels like what I feel like herpetoculture should be. It's like a collaborative effort. Everyone is like very transparent about the methods and techniques they're trying. It's a pretty positive environment. You know, it's like, I think part of that is because it's not like a huge group and it's a pretty like niche species. So anyone, you know, who is keeping them is pretty invested in doing it um, in a way that's healthy the animals um and i think seeing just seeing like how the tech has advanced even from like you know like when i was keeping like as a kid you know like there's just a whole leaps and bounds beyond Mm -hmm. that and it's and a lot of that is just like i just didn't know you know like i didn't necessarily understand how to properly heat enclosure you know i don't understand ventilation humidity you know um but seeing like the ingenuity that I think like a lot of, I mean, I think there's like a really strong DIY element too, like the ingenuity. Like I love how there's all these issues that are often like very, very climate and location specific. Like I have completely different keeping parameters to someone, like even just like Connor, you know, Connor's like in Texas. Yes. Yeah. Like very different things that he has to worry about compared to like me. And you know, even like prior to me moving, I had a completely different, even just like based on like the room you're keeping in, there's individual parameters. Oh yeah. And seeing how everyone is like 
figure these out, you know, like all of their solutions are really interesting. And I think even if they aren't like directly applicable, you know, I think you can like learn from that. There's just like, you're constantly able to learn about anything, even if it's, you know, just like some really niche, like heat light thing, you know, like halogen issue, but yeah. And I guess like negative, there's a lot of like, I feel like dick measuring, like frankly, like there's a lot of like competitive, like bullshit that just like does not need to be there. Like, I don't know Mm why it's that deep. It's not, you know, like I'm just, I'm here to like learn about these animals, just like make friends, you know, essentially. And then there's people who just like, cannot are not interested in constructive criticism you know are not interested in providing for their animals i think that's like maybe what's most like upsetting to me is just like not you know like new keepers like i think i i obviously i mean i've like killed plenty of animals unfortunately you know like there's absolutely like room for improvement and i don't expect like new keepers to come in you know with this like crazy setup but people who are like willfully like ignorant about like the Mm -hmm. ecology and natural history of their the species that they're keeping and are just like not receptive to learning more about that or even like really interested in the animal i think is the biggest thing Mm -hmm. like i I just don't understand like why you'd have it you know, yeah, mm-hmm. definitely a set of a set of keepers who feel like they're really wanting an ornament more than a, a, living, right. a living creature in their house. Yeah. And I think there's just like, like it's a, I mean, I think you guys touched on it um, prior, but like, it's, it's definitely like a privilege. Like it's not a God given right to have these animals. And it's like absolutely a privilege to like, you know, be in such close proximity to them. Um, I think like that part of that is also just like, you know, social media, not to just like, you know, mm-hmm. harp on about that, but like, there's no, harp on about it. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely like, <laughs> issues with how that interacts with like just people being assholes. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, any kind of like communication issue like that. But and I think there's a lot of like ethical issues too. Like, there's some serious ethical like considerations when you're like being any animal in captivity. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's, you know, not that like, I mean, I think like people should at least be like aware of those and like consider those, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a lot of times where I wonder like, like why do I have these, you know, like I love having them, you know, and like what right do I have to just like have this thing in a PVC box in my house you know yeah dude yes this is so this is a very common recurring theme uh not just in the people we've spoken with on the show in friends of mine for years it's been like there there comes a point where if you and and um i think it was jordan russell who i was talking with about this at one point that like if you're not regularly having internal conversations with yourself about whether or not you ought to or deserve to do this, you're probably doing it wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that was, that was pretty profound, you know? And, and it, it, because it's like, um, 
don't get me wrong. Like, I think there's great reasons. I think there's very, right. very good. Yeah, reasons. absolutely. But it, it, I think it shows a strength of empathy, a strength of character um, to admit when, you know, because it shows you, you care about the animals, you know, you care, you, these are not an ornament. There's something that you respect profoundly. I'm sorry. I keep looking over because sure there's this, there's a, a group of ornates that are trying to determine if they're fighting or not. And it's stressing me out, but, um, you're good. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like as you're talking about empathy, <laughs> right? I didn't do it. It's the worst. I can't, it's such a, a horrible sound. I hate the sound. Mm-hmm. And like, I hate here, you know, seeing, I hate going over to the cage and seeing one Euro ripping away and another just running it down. Oh, it just, it really gets to me. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but really, you know, like it, it, there, there is Max, like what you're saying, there really does seem to be some kind of stark division between the folks who, who want and the want is paramount to any other piece of rationale that you could, you could, you could come up with to say, you know, uh, and then there's the folks who are like, look, there's, there's lots of reasons I could think of not to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? But, but, and that's okay. Like there's, you know, those reasons um, are a motivating factor those reasons why not are, are, are some of my reasons to do much, much better, you know, like I've yeah. done it and, and it, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really, I completely relate to all of, all of that, that both of you have said on this and just feel like, yeah, there's value in like looking at that kind of, um, introspection as in, and just like consideration as a virtue, you know, and, within within herbiculture i think that um yeah it's 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 it is something that drives progression and um is helping you know ideally helping us to advance what we're doing you know in terms of of our of our care and our husbandry and um I mean, it, I, I often feel like, like, you know, I'll be like writing an article or something or like a blog or something about reptiles. And like, I'm like, whenever I encounter the word captivity, I'm kind of like, I kind of cringe a little bit because it's yeah. a gross word. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, this is, that's an intense word. It's, it's a weighted word. We should, and, uh, um, we should, we should, we should appropriate some other word for it instead. Be like, oh, when, when keeping <laughs> reptiles in the home. Or something, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Because maybe animals at home. Oh, 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 oh yeah, <laughs> Dylan, let's go. <laughs> that was well played, really Brilliant. good. Yeah, it was, it was so spot on. Um, don't mind me. I'm just gonna show for it. Yeah, okay. go for it. Yeah, but like I feel like yeah, there's there's a part of me that like does want to like look for other terminology, but then there's another part of me that's like. No, I want to kind of like uh, sit with the discomfort that this yeah. that this stirs in me, you know, in a way, and 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 not to like, you know, feel feel bad about myself or about my animals because I I I, uh, you know, I'm I'm constantly striving to do right by them, and you know, obviously, like if I'm continuing to do herpetoculture as I am, um, I I 
I don't feel entirely reconciled about it, but I also don't, I don't feel like it's, it's wrong either. You know, it's, I think it's, yeah. it's, it's complex. And, um, I think that there's, I think that, yeah, I guess, I guess all of it just to say that I think that there's a lot of value in, in, um, exploring that complexity and, um, like what's coming to mind right now too, is also just like remembering, um, that like, I think it is important at the end of the day to acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's an ethnozoological function, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Philippe de Vaugely would say, you know, and so it's, it's, it's serving our ends. Um, and that said, like, it's, I think that there are ways in which we can be creative as people and as hobbyists and professionals, um, within herpetoculture to, um, also benefit the herpetofauna itself and yeah. um whether that's you know our our or hopefully it's ideally you know in an ideal world we're we're both benefiting their wild counterparts in some way by supporting conservation or um you know contributing to the kind of like um broader understanding of these species and or we're seeking to improve the conditions of the animals in our care at home yeah I, oh, go ahead. No, 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 you, please. Um, I was going to say, I feel like I, I try to use that as like motivation as fuel to like constantly improve my husbandry. You know, and I think there's like absolutely like utilitarian considerations, um, especially at like larger scales. Um, but at least for me, like since I'm, I am keeping at such a small scale, I'm really like trying to um, just constantly improve that. Um, I think it's like, like, I think even maybe even like the more conflicted I become, like the, the greater my, and the more I see like, um, reptiles and amphibians in the wild, like I've been field herping more as well recently. Mm -hmm. That has like really, um, made me like interrogate like why and what species and like how I'm keeping these animals. But yeah, I think like, it's really critical to interrogate that and then use that as motivation to, um, just improve. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with, with both of you guys on this. Um, there is something though it, that stands out to me, um, in what Philippe said about the, um, herpeticulture serves our needs. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously that's dead on. It's hundred percent. Right. Um, I just don't think it's, uh, maybe this is something I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of years, which is like, maybe that's also like an incomplete view in the sense that, um, there are other needs being served as well. Like their needs are also being met. Right. And, And we may be, uh, like the process of domestication. And I know that there's, okay. So this opens up like a whole nother can of worms because, um, you know, we, you know, we have, we have famous thinkers who talk about things like corn, soy, dogs, mm-hmm. koi, bonsai, yeah. all these animals that have attached themselves to us. And um, yes, it's the reasons they've done so have been because we have some weird fascination with them. That's not right. necessarily anything that immediately benefits them, but yeah, uh, corn and soy are everywhere and it's an yeah. evolutionary success for them to have done such a thing to attach themselves to us. Now, obviously there's huge concerns with, um, 
monocrop, monocrop ag agriculture and, right. and uh, factory farming and, and the treatment mm -hmm. of food animals and things like that. Obviously, all that stuff goes without saying. But I feel like her pediculture is the, the start of all of that uh, with hopefully a better future in mind. Uh, just mm -hmm. for, for reptiles and amphibians, you know, some, some of these animals that we're bringing into captivity into the home are, mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they are the, the, you know, sort of the lucky few for lack of a better way of putting it, that will lead to something that's quite different, something that doesn't resemble the wild animal identically anymore, but, mm -hmm. but, but, but has changed as a result of being, um, lucky enough again, for lack of a for lack of better terminology here, uh, to have attached themselves to the human species in some way. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this, this particular note of domestication in that, in that regard gives me a lot of, uh, relief in some way, you know, like it, I don't, cause, because there's something, um, and, and of course, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, okay, I, I, you know, cause there's a whole set of keepers who don't want anything in cap in the home to, to not resemble the wild. It's got to have right. locality specific rocks and plants and it diet. Right. And, and I'm, I own mm -hmm. the dominant goal is the wild type. And that's the only mm -hmm. thing that matters. And, and I have a hard respect for that as well. At the same time, I feel like that style of keeping has a ceiling in the sense that mm -hmm. if, you know, um, if the whole goal is to just replicate the wild exclusively and not change something or, or tweak something, you're always going to fall short. And it feels a little mm -hmm. more ethically fraught in my, from, from mm -hmm. my, from my view, at least in some way. Whereas mm -hmm. if we just, if, if we're honest about this and we say, dude, this is something different altogether. What we're doing right. is very, very different. Then it, it opens up the, field to something that resembles um a partnership more and resembles um something that you're not going to be you're not you're not forcing a square peg into a round hole anymore mm -hmm. anymore at some point you're right. shaping that peg so it fits you know <laughs> like you're you're I'm, yeah. I'm I'm whittling the peg a little bit so that way it fits into the round hole mm -hmm. and I'm not you know I don't know does that make sense yeah that makes it? sense I think like some degree of like, you know, maybe domestication is the wrong word, but, um, but of like domestication is like inevitable. Like I think there, like we're placing a completely different set of like parameters on, you know, the individuals that survive than like mm -hmm. the wild would, you know, like, yeah. especially species that have been in captivity for a while, like, you know, like corn stays, leopard geckos, ball pythons, all that kind of stuff. Like, the animals that are surviving in the wild are very different from the ones that like we're maintaining, you know, mm -hmm. and I wonder some, at some point, like how ethical, you know, like maybe like force feeding animals to keep them alive, like that kind of stuff mm -hmm. is, you know, just like mm -hmm. to maintain, I mean, I understand like losing an animal is difficult. Absolutely. But, you know, like, is that, you know, detrimental to like the gene pool ultimately, mm -hmm. as far as like yeah. the captive, management is concerned but yeah like i think like even unintentionally like we are selecting for certain things yeah um within like captive animals that like are inherently different from the wild i think it's like totally mm -hmm. i like that kind of uh 
way of understanding permaculture like almost as like a form of agriculture but I think it's like we need to you know conceptualize it and like strive towards something that like more closely resembles like permaculture I feel yeah. like like there needs to be it needs to be something that's like sustainable um long term both like for you know like the animals and ourselves you know and it's like mm-hmm. um like ethical I think oh it's yeah need to consider all of that yeah yeah couldn't agree more there man um it it's like even and, and even though I say all of that, even though um, I see what what I'm doing is something that isn't necessarily meant to replicate the wild per se. Yeah, that's obviously where I'm getting my information. Right, yeah, <laughs> it's totally. just like just like humans, like Roy and I talk about this all the time. Now, this whole um, you know the human animal was you know evolved on the savanna. But we find ourselves in a city. So, all right, well, okay. So maybe I have to go like lift weights and 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 run around, whereas my ancestors didn't have to do that. But I have to do that, right? So it's like, what am I going to have to do with these animals, with these euros, right? Like, okay, uh, do they live in roofing tiles in the wild? If I put them out there, I bet they would. But no, they don't. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like uh, absolutely, yeah. And and so that like I still have to be informed by natural history and ecology and um uh understanding your the animal's role where they come from um and like you uh, but also like you were just mentioning max I, I feel like this is uh you you hit on something really big there which is we as keepers are are totally imperfect selection mechanisms mm-hmm. we I've said before um, that I don't believe in, in runs. I don't believe that mm-hmm. a runs thing. And, and um, you know, because if you have a clutch of 20 lizards and 19 of them hatch on Monday and there's a giant bird that's there and eats all 19 of them because it figured it out. And then the bird flies away because it's full. And then the one that hatched out late, a little small, a little weak, weaker looking or right. pops out on Tuesday dodged the bird and lives on to, to bone down and propagate its species, right? Like yeah, that, absolutely. That's mm-hmm. you can't control for that kind of randomness and chaos. You can't account for that in mm-hmm. your calculus as a keeper. And and that extends out into, I mean, you could you could subdivide this infinitely in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like like I'm technically selecting for ornate Euromastics that do well in my conditions in Colorado, mm-hmm. that might be very different, not just in terms of local environment, but local availability of groceries. Like what groceries right. I find at the store that someone in Memphis can't, right? I, I mean, or, you know, who knows? Maybe that's a little, a little broad, but, you know, uh, and then just there's, you know, we know enough about the human brain that, we know that there are so many things, so many choices that happened way, way, way below the conscious level. Mm-hmm. How many and what kind of, uh, how many and what kinds of things are happening with our animals that we, we're just not cognizant of? We're not, mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't be cognizant of for one reason or another, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. I feel like, um, I don't know, to, to stir the pot a little bit more on this, I think like when you were speaking to like going back to what Philippe was saying yeah. and um, I think that there's another aspect of of it too, which is that like um, 
crypto culture is is relevant in this context, but the reality mm-hmm. is that like this is the context of like human civilization, and mm-hmm. it's not the only context that humans have existed. You know, like right. like, and I think about like you know, in some ways, like domestication predates civilization. You oh, know, yeah. oh yeah, and so it's like. You know, were there were there early people's pre-civilization that were like playing with reptiles? Who knows? Surely, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Surely, Maybe. Had probably to. had to. But I think had about to. like this is like something that I feel about on so many levels. Like so many of the conflicts that we see hotly contested and debated in like modern society are kind of like these like moral um, dilemmas that. Um, I feel like our questions about like, is this relevant, you know, or does, is this necessary? Um, and in a lot of ways, it's like, well, I think the answer to that is always like, yes, because it's here, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. like, like totally. it's relevant because it's art, it's already in the mix, you know, it's like, yeah. like say what you want about like, about like the existence of drugs or like the existence of like sex work, you know, or like all right. these things that are like comp- complicated things, you know, yeah. you can, and you can look at herpetoculture as one of these complicated things. It's like highly pluralistic. I don't, I don't think the, um, the debate is so much like, should this exist or not? Right. <laughs> because like the reality is the cat's already out of the bag. It's here right. <laughs> and it's here to stay. Um, at least within the context of civilization until we like, or in some other thing where all of these considerations are totally irrelevant. Yeah. Um, the reality is they're relevant. They're here now. And so then I think it creates like a different imperative and a different kind of set of questioning that emerges emerges from that, which is like, well, then how can we make it as good, um, as thoughtful, as ethical, as, um, as um, you know, well as we can. Mm-hmm. And, um, I feel like in some ways, like that kind of feels liberating for me as someone who like can sometimes yeah have these these like internal um, conflicts around around herpetoculture. You know, it's just it's helpful to remember that it's like you know regardless of my involvement in this or not, it's here. Yeah, and, right. Um, I may as well be like an active participant and a proactive participant um, in this endeavor. You know, and and seek to seek to contribute something of value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, damn, dude, dropping hot fire over. Yeah, drop the yeah. mic. <laughs> well, and and there's also like a like a highly you know if I'm going to take the competitive angle, which I tend to do because of uh, I, I like winning, um, you know. <laughs> uh, but but like, I, and I know I've kind of I've harped on this in a previous episode. Uh, actually, I think it was the our launch episode with Dylan where I said, um, you know, don't tread on me, or because I can isn't enough. But but I but I also I, I am also motivated and moved by arguments such as, um, you know, when people suggest why we can do this or why you know why why do you want to do that or why you know like what's your rationale or what 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 value do you get out of it? It's like I can ask that about a lot of completely mm-hmm. acceptable culturally instantiated institutions that are like I'm like why should you be able to make a, a fucking soda? jerk ass like you, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you, you get to just make this drink that uh has all this sugar and shit in it that's not good for you and, and whatever but like no one's asking whether or not you should right yeah. uh, no, no one's asking whether or not you should have um 
like a hot rod or you should be able to base jump or you should be able to, um, you know, uh, whatever you, like you name it, man. Like what, mm-hmm. wh- why the screw? I, I can ask you why should you, why should I be allowed to have Bengal cats that right. if I let them outside would absolutely mutilate the local environment, you know, <laughs> it's just cause they would, I promise you. Um, and it, it's, uh, obviously that that's Roy, what you were saying was m- much more spot on because this level of argumentation that I'm making now doesn't take into account that this is a living, these are living animals, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't incorporate their experience, their feelings, their concerns, their needs, but it, but it, it feels a little bit like the, as you said, the cat's out of the bag, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if we're already doing this, um, like I, I remember very early on, when I, when I, um, I come back from, from Seattle and I, I had tried living in Seattle for a short period of time. And then I came back and I, I had temporarily my Tom, I had one pair of Euromastics at the time and they were, it was, it was my Euromastics Thomas I pair. And they, and I had left them at my mom's place just to, as temporarily, it was going to have her, uh, send them out to me once I'd got gotten established in Seattle. Um, but it, everything fell apart out there and I came back and, um, I had decided at that point in time, and it's like, all right, I'm going to do a lot more of this and I'm going to take it a lot more seriously. And I remember one of the things I thought about was um, somebody has to set a good example in this, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, of course there were lots of people setting good examples well before I got involved, but like it, it's, that is an ongoing engagement, you, you know, like if, if, if there, if there aren't, new people getting involved all the time. If there aren't Mm -hmm. younger up and coming folks who are, are, are thinking about these things, articulating them to them, to themselves and to the people they care about um, broadcasting these things on any available platform. uh, It, it, I just don't, I I, like, you have to, you you, you just Mm -hmm. absolutely have to, um, you know? Yeah. It has to progress, you know, like, it has to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. <laughs> uh, well, I love so, that. I love this, this kind of, this kind of consideration. Just mm-hmm. grateful for what you're both bringing to this right now. Yeah. Ditto. Um, so, so Max, to get a little, a little less uh, philosophical, um, <laughs> I want to, I, uh, I want to ask you, so you you mentioned field herping and yeah. um, I feel like my, uh, the, a lot of the field herping I've done in the, in the American Southwest has very much informed what I do here. Um, if, if that's the case for you, can you tell me, can you talk about some of the ways that field herping has influenced your keeping style? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think like, I've never, I've never been to the American Southwest, you know, like furthest West I've ever been, it's been Colorado actually. Um, so I have a kind of a different frame for that. Sure. Like my herping is mostly, um, you know, like Eastern Kansas, Ozarks, um, you know, like mid South basically. Yeah. So, um, you know, and I, I had a really, um, formative experience like in the, um, Washita mountains in Arkansas, like as, you know, 14 or 15 year old, um, 
just like catching salamanders out there. I had this like one specific trip with my dad that was really formative. Um, but yeah, and I, I think like I've only like recently kind of started with like there was a there's a mutual friend that um Roy and I have like in eastern Kansas, and I was like prior to to moving, I was doing a lot of herping, mm-hmm. you know in the flint hills we're doing all sorts of like limp repeltis like um, all that kind of stuff um which was incredible and i think what's even more maybe in my wheelhouse um is like going back to those salamanders like i yeah you know i started herping again and then i you know saw some on these cave salamanders in arkansas that just like blew my mind like uricea wissifugia they're just like in this deep you know in these they they have this extreme you know like ecological niche sick you know and it's just like they're gorgeous animals and i was like just amazed by them i think like that salamanders specifically have kind of been shaping that more but i think like maybe my greatest like takeaway from that is that i'm seeing like to, to what a degree these animals are like inhabiting ecological niches so like the exact like there's such specific microhabitats for salamanders especially yeah like there are you know species that are only you know in a very specific like range and elevation you know in seeps with specific you know rocks or you know specific kinds of clay you know and you have to know that information if you want to like actually find these animals like you're just you're not going to otherwise unless you get really lucky yeah you know? And I like thinking about that has made me like reconsider like the niches that I'm providing. Cause like essentially like what we're doing in captivity is providing them with like a single niche, mm-hmm. you know, we aren't, we can provide, you know, like a range of temperatures and humidity and we want them to, you know, exploit those different areas as best as they can. We want to provide that range so they can pick within that. But just by virtue of like the size of enclosures that like most people are providing, like we are not able to provide, you know, like a hillside, Mm. you know, we're not able to provide like acres of habitat. Like we are still, it's still like a relatively stable environment Mm -hmm. depending on the keeping style, you know, but I think there's, there's that limitation. So it's made me, I guess like want to zero in even more specifically on like the kind of microhabitats that um, the animals that I'm keeping, you know, thrive in. That's pretty brilliant. The, the, that we're, we're, it's one niche as a, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, that's really great. I, I, I like that quite a, quite a lot. Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I feel like one of the revelations I had when I, when I started herping out, out, out in the deserts here um, specifically looking for chuckwallas and collared lizards was, mm-hmm. um, the, okay. So, you know, when, when people keep a lot of animal, you know, like a desert lizard, a lot of people, it's like, uh, you know, we'll say, Oh, you got to give it a lot of hiding places and people right. will just get like these overturned caves or like little, you know, just little kind mm-hmm. of one dimensional, um, right. you know, uh, hiding spaces. And, when you're when you when you actually get out and look look at the way a desert lizard that that is crevice dwelling or a boulder obligate spends its time it it's not it's not just that there are you know countless um spaces underneath stuff it's in between crevices mm-hmm. at different yeah. angles 
the and what becomes a hiding place changes as the sun as the day moves along and so the, and so it's like this real it's it's really quite three dimensionals in the round entirely and so that that led me here anyway to start using um the roofing tiles that i've mentioned and then other objects in conjunction with one another to give you know like like two or three dozen hiding places of various shapes, sizes, angles, orientations, temperatures, humidity levels in one spot, because it's actually not that hard to provide that if, in the desert. Mm -hmm. way. It's really not that hard to provide that with just a, a pile of rocks, you know, yeah. and, um, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, uh, you know, another one is, is um, I've been, so one thing I do a lot here is I open up all the doors and I put a lot of animals out in the sun at various times for various reasons. And there's one thing that I, I just had never been able to get my animals to do because I'm not equipped for it, even when I put them outside. And I just, I just started having it happen a few weeks ago because my front door opens. And if you let the sun, uh, if I leave the door all the way open and the sun is setting sufficiently, it like shoots right in the front door, like at a horizontal angle. Mm -hmm. And my baby ornates were sitting up on their rock doing the thing where they're holding themselves up at, like on all fours, which is my favorite thing. And they were facing the sun. That's the yeah. best. Thing. And they can't yeah. do that when it's a dome. They're never going to do it. You know, so cool. I was just like, ah, look at them. They're doing the thing. It got me really hyped up as you can tell. <laughs> that's, that's I love that. Stuff. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I, I was, I was dying watching him do it, you know, cause it's, and I don't know how to, I guess I'd have to do what Eric was talking about, which that is was, yeah, yeah. put the bulb horizontally, you know, um, what I, I just want somebody to build like a $5,000 track light that not only goes <laughs> over like this, but also rotates in a circle. You know what I mean? So I can do it like it, like it, it'll be yeah, like okay. those camera rigs where yes. you, you know, like, yeah, yes, yeah. Dude. I know somebody, what you're talking about. Somebody put a high powered, uv emitting heat lamp on that damn thing and let me use it for the lizards i said that would be the best <laughs> you're just gonna like get there someday <laughs> yeah you're gonna live in the like henry doily like desert down <laughs> in like 10 years that's actually a that's that would be a much better way to go about it i really should <laughs> you know uh eventually maybe i'll do that but uh i i, I that's, really? that's intimidating yeah yeah it's a lot of glass yeah yeah. Well, both How of your sorry. Go ahead, Roy. Oh no, no, sorry. I I didn't mean to cut you off, but um, no, you didn't. I was just gonna say that, like, what both of you are speaking to about, just like, yeah, field observations, and I I, I experienced myself with field being here, which is like, it makes me feel um like that's kind of like the next frontier for me as a herbiculturist with the species I keep is to like go try and see them you know, in their oh, yeah. ranges. Yeah. And um, like, I think especially because I'm, I'm kind of approaching a point where like um, my collection isn't really going to be growing um, very much anymore. Like I've, I've kind of maxed out space and, and just kind of what I feel like I can reasonably do is like, I'm pretty close to that threshold, mm -hmm. maybe not quite there, but close. And I think when I do get to that threshold, what I want to start doing is like, instead of focusing on like, again, growth of the collection is actually like focusing on like going out to where each of these species that I work with comes from and making the attempt to see them. Because I think that 
there's, yeah, like you say, like we're replicating just part, you know, we're replicating one niche that they're, you know, um, using in, in, in our homes. And, um, yeah, I'm working on it there. Um, and, and, you know, like, I, I think that in a way we can kind of like get a pretty nuanced feel for, for what those niches are like if we experiencing experience them out in the wild like yeah i think about how like a lot of species that i know well from just growing up where i live and going field terping a lot it's like very often i'll be like in a place and i'll feel like okay this feels like the right place to see this species yeah you know and then and then there it is and that's like a lot of it isn't even stuff that i can maybe like cognitively describe it's just like a felt sense and i think that like I would love to get to the place where I could experience that felt sense with yeah. the species that I'm actually working with at home. So I could try to replicate you, that feeling in this, you know. Yeah, but dude, I, I, dude, it's impossible. No, no, it's, <laughs> I don't know. So we, we uh, my friend Nick Dokai and I, who, you know, he used to do a lot of chucks and, and collared lizards and such. Um, we, when we would go herping, uh, w- one of the things we would do is we'd be walking ar- around and we'd be like, man, that rock pile right oh yeah okay yeah that that rock pile right there that's got to have a chuck in it for sure it has to it's just like yeah it's perfect and you go over and you look and there's nothing yeah all right i was wrong you know (laughs) no yeah i i just had i went on a a trip out to like um like northern alabama yeah look for salamanders i was looking for like green salamanders like yeah I was super cool. My favorite species, but I was like, there were so I spent like a whole entire day just like going to what I thought was perfect habitat. For yeah. These yeah. Animals, you know, and I was like shining all these crevices, you know, I'm like, this is the rock, you know, this is the formation, you know, this is the exact crevice. Like it looks yep. perfect. You know, it's just humid enough. And then I like look in there and there's like absolutely nothing. Yeah. I, yeah, man, there was a, there was another one, um, when I was, we were in California, we were in Southern California and I was looking, we were looking for chucks and it was shining the cracks, just like you're talking about. And I shined in one and I was looking real close and like my face, you know, it's like right here, looking, looking, <laughs> looking and, and, uh, right in front, right at the entrance to the crevice was a night lizard. Oh, nice. Like, yeah. Oh, whoa. What a trip. Like, <laughs> like what are the odds that you would just yeah. stumble upon something you weren't looking for like that? Like that was uh, I very much enjoyed that. I, I, I really, uh, God damn, man. I'm not, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be able to get out do any field herping this year other than right. out East in Colorado. Um, but I really, I really want to, and I actually want to go to Appalachia. Like I've been telling my fiance, oh, yeah. I want to go to Appalachia and look for salamanders because, um, I, you know, when I, when I was a little kid, I was born in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. We moved here to Colorado when I was like right before I turned six years old but I used to rip around the backyard and find salamanders along with the yeah. garlic and other stuff. And, uh, I, I, I really would like to reconnect with that little bit of exploration I did as a kid and take it to a level of what I'm doing today, which is more specific and more interested and more pointed and, and more articulate. Um, and I feel like Appalachia would be the place to do that uh for salamanders anyway but absolutely yeah so so what that means is we got to take a herb trip we'll go to i'm I'm telling you we're gonna go to appalachia (laughs) and then we're gonna go to the amazon and i can i can get us around because i have a little bit of portuguese and i can do jujitsu down there so 
We can go see <laughs> the puffy snakes. And then, then we got to go to Oman or Egypt or Israel. Yes. Because the thing about Oman is you can find three Euro species all in the same place. So oh, nice. Homicide, Thomas, Egyptian Microlepis, and uh, Benti. So, wow. Yeah. Cool. It's the only place. I don't think there's any other place where you can find multiple species like that in one uh, one region. So, uh, we should, uh, we should, we'll do it. Let's just do that. Let's just go tomorrow. Yeah. That's yeah, fine. I, I don't I mean, I don't, I'm serious about this. This is all going to happen. So am I, I mean, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm being a hundred percent over honest right now. It's just, uh, I just want to go tomorrow. I'm really impatient. I know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's know. hard. Yeah. It's hard to wait around for stuff you want to do. I'm excited for the Appalachian trip though. Me go, yeah. go link up with Max and get Charlie out there. Go find some slime otters. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see a hellbender so, so bad. <laughs> you what? I would love to see a hellbender. Like, I like how that's like, there's something like mythological about those, like, especially like the Ozark hellbenders. Cause like, yes. you know, they like yes. in the state that I like, you know, like, I, you know, spent a lot of time in Colorado and then I like ended up moving to Missouri, but like they're there, you know, and I yeah. saw these stories, you know, I've, I've seen them in captivity, but it's just like not the same. Like I would love to just mm-hmm. like, you know, be walking around and I'm like, holy shit, like there's a hellbender, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I would, like oh, I'd lose man. my mind. That would be so it's much like, fun. It's like seeing a cryptid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Like mythological, like you said. <laughs> seriously. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, this is, uh, I, I, I'm very much enjoying this conversation and I think, uh, I don't know about you, Roy, but, uh, mm-hmm. do you think now's the time for the, for the, the one? The- I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Max, Get on Max. <laughs> yeah. you, you might know already, but we have this one question that we ask everybody. Um, and, uh, the, and feel free to take this as broadly or as specifically as you, as you like. Um, but can you talk a little bit about why, why herpeticulture? Like why that could be why, not just why do you do it, but like, why do it in the first place? Why, mm-hmm. why do any of us do it? Um, and I, I also understand that a lot of us might just agree by default with Philippe's <laughs> because we, it's, it's, it's good for us. We like it. That's fine too. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> also cool. Yeah. And actually, uh, <laughs> By the time this one comes out, this will already be out. But Phil Tremper said uh, he said it's a mental illness. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a disease. <laughs> it's a disease. So it's just nothing you can do. And there's no cure. So <laughs> so for uh, you, feels just as accurate. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's like all that, all the above. Like, I think it's like I don't know. Like, I've always kind of done it. I can't imagine like not doing it really you know like even the periods of my life where I was like less you know like pointedly interested in it less like acutely you know interested in it like I was still you know keeping some species you know and I like yeah I think it's really for me it's like you know like incredible to like get to spend in such like an intimate way like this time with these animals Mm-hmm. you know to have like you know as much as you can have like a personal relationship with like a snake oh, yeah. you know like i know obviously like they don't really care that i'm there <laughs> you know, they don't care about me that's fine though you know yeah. but it's cool to just care like, if you're holding the food tongs they do yeah <laughs> yeah and i care if i'm wearing the gloves or not <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah i think it's like i get to see some incredible behaviors i think like 
if I could like instantly teleport, you know, anywhere in the world for free, you know, I don't know if I could, if I want to do it, you know, if I could just see everything, you know, in the wilds, like for free. Yeah. Like absolutely. Like I just do that instead, but this is like, this is almost as good. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's really, that's really beautiful. I like that quite a bit. Um, it just as a little side thing, I, I'm not convinced that they don't care about us. I'm still not convinced by that. <laughs> oh, there she is again. Oh, what up, sweetie? What, what a legend! Look at that smile. Oh man, <laughs> such a wolf. Yeah, straight up. Um, yeah, I'm not convinced, man. I mean, I I feel like you you said it right when you said that you we have a relationship with these guys. I mean you know, these, these Euro, I mean, just because my euros have legs and arms, you know, make, maybe makes it a little more relatable than, than, a, than a snake in some way, but technically snakes are higher up, uh, you know, or further along and down the evolutionary ladder than a lizard. So surely they've got some of the same, if not all the same and more feelings and, and mm-hmm. emotions and whatnot. Yeah. I, I feel like my animals, they know, I mean, you know, they, they, uh, the subtle ways that they, show me that they know what's up, you know, like mm-hmm. take a closed fist and and they come ripping over like they expect food. And then I open up my hand and there's nothing in there. And they're like, you know, and they look around, they're like, this is weird. And then they turn around and run away or, <laughs> or like, um, or like, uh, I posted, I've posted a little, a little video recently of an ornate of mine who's like totally cool with me being in the cage and around. And, and she's pissed the second you try to touch her at all. And so like, you know what I mean? But it, but it's funny because she like, it's so quirky the way she does it. You know, you go to reach and touch her and she'll just kind of flit and move like five, five, 10 inches away from you. And then just look and then like (laughs) flit. And then, you know, she runs away a little bit further. And then if you do it like three, four times, then she's like, fuck this and goes into her, into a a deep hide where I can't mess with her. But I feel like they, I think they, they, insofar as maybe care is, is not, the right word, but like the fact that they take notice, I think is, is what's really, that feels beautiful. Like I love, I love that I have that opportunity. Like it would be, it would be so much less fulfilling if they didn't, you know, but they, they, but they really do. They know that you're there. They paying attention to you. They're reacting to you. They're engaging with you. And the more you open up your uh, perceptive flexibility, the more, and, and sure, some of it's going to be misinterpretation, but some of it's hundred percent legitimate, you know, like right. I, love, I love, I fucking love that part of the interaction, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, don't mean no, to that's good. change the topic too much or, or whatever, but uh, I, 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 anyway, uh, <laughs> uh Roy. That's the good stuff. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I think that that's, um, it's a good episode. Thank yeah. You both. It's probably the close yeah. right there. We're North of two hours now. So that's, that's impressive. Time flies, dude. I'm telling you, it just flies it by does. when we're having these conversations. Yeah. Um, and I, and well, I, Max, where, where can people find you? <laughs> oh, I'm on. I mean, I'm I'm like on. I don't really have like too much of a social media presence, but I'm like on Facebook. You know, just Max Stop, and I'm like 
my Instagram, which is like, I don't post super regularly, but it's like Langaha12. Haven't come up with anything catchier yet, but you post more <laughs> regularly. I know. I've yeah. been, yeah, I've been trying to post some style manners, but for those of us who want to know, you should, you, I, I want to, you got to post wearing mines. Even if it's just once, once a week, you should, I should try, throw it out there, man. You should. <laughs> <laughs> I'll right. try to, awesome. just for you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, as long as, as if, especially if it's just for me, that's the, that's the. <laughs> all right, here I'm gonna uh, stop the recording.